fish on. Hey, Radcast is on. Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. From the Porter's 10Cast Studio, here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Hello out there, Radio Land. I'm David Merrill, and this is Radcast Outdoors. Hey, everybody. I'm Patrick Edwards, and we're back here to do another episode with you. Unfortunately, it's not great news, huh, David? No, it's been a, it's been a rough go for uh, 2020, gentlemen. Does anybody else just wish that 2020 would be a mulligan so that we could start over? Because I sure do. <laughs> well, I want to. I'll I'll start. I'll I'll rip the bandaid off. You know, we've been prepping for this big Alaska deal and really excited and looking forward to it. And with the uh, new regulations, we just couldn't couldn't make it happen. Yeah, so for those of you who maybe have traveled to Alaska, you're probably aware that June 30th, they started this new thing where if you're traveling to Alaska, you have to have a negative COVID test 70, within 72 hours of your departure time. Well, with David and I being here in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming, not real feasible, was it, David? <laughs> well, they, they quit even administering the tests. A month and a half ago, so we couldn't even get a test. And, you know, that wasn't the problem. We could have gone to another state and got a test. But the problem was going to another state, getting a test, getting the results, and getting in time. And here was the kicker. If you showed up without that test, they made you retest. Yep. And if your retest came back, even with a false positive, they were uh, putting you on a two-week quarantine in the state, and we just couldn't. We had other things to do. We got to be down here making episodes for you guys. Not only that, it's a two-week quarantine at your own expense. So what that means is you test positive whether you actually have it or not, which we've seen in the news a ton of different cases of these false positives. Well, if David or I, either one of us, you know, were to do that and test positive, we would have been stuck in Alaska, which it sounds great, except for the fact that you're supposed to quarantine. Oh, but we do, we, we, we're, we're adapting, we're going on, we're going to go fishing here this afternoon. So, yeah, so we're going to try to make the most of it, but it is a bummer. Um, I think one of the biggest things, you know, for David and I is we've been planning this and looking at it for quite a while now and since about February. Yeah, it's kind of rough. It's a tough pill to swallow, but we, on a, on a lighter side, we do have a Radcast outdoor shirts and they will be on the website here shortly. They are a nice shirt. Um, what we have right now is a large to start out with. We'll get some more in, but uh, definitely go check those out. Um, if you haven't been on the website lately, we've got a lot of updates on there. You can now listen to all the episodes right on the website, which is kind of nice to be able to do. And one of the things that you know, I have people ask me, how can I help the show? We want to spread the word. Best thing you can do is rate, review, subscribe, do all those things, and then also on our Facebook page, throw us a review. That really helps out. Go go share the episodes out. Exactly. So Dave and I will try again next year. We're hoping <laughs> to so go it's, to Alaska. It's on the books. We're going, and we're going we're gonna to add an extra day or two because i got to get two years' worth of fishing in now. Yeah, exactly. Um, but for those of you who are thinking about traveling to Alaska, there is a some things you should think about. So I'm going to go through them real quick with the travel and what they've got set up right now. So again, if you're going to go, you have to have a 72 hour, within 72 hours of your departure, you have to have a negative test. Um, if you don't want to do that, there is the option to 
um, have a test within the last five days. You get tested while you're there in Alaska at your own expense, by the way. And that one, um, if it comes back positive, well, back up a little bit, you have to quarantine until you get the results while you're in Alaska. Then um, once you get the results, if, if you're negative, then you can go fishing and do whatever you want to do. Or, um, you know, if it's positive, you have to stay for 14 days at your own expense. Um, so that's, that's how everything was going. That's why, again, David and I are here in Wyoming still. Um, cause he's got a bunch of stuff going on with bow spider. And, um, so talk about that a little bit, you know, while, while we've got you here, you know, how's the bow spider thing going? Well, uh, bow spider is, you know, we're, we're calling it bow spadra. We're, <laughs> we're, we've been slinging them and selling them, but a lot of people are using them and really starting to, you know, see the virtues of the product and how it, how it can make their trips a little more enjoyable. And I heard you got to meet somebody kind of cool last week. Yeah, I've, I met a couple of cool people and had had some fun times. Uh, Jocko Willink was in in the booth, and we got to talk a little bit about uh, jujitsu and hanging out and a little bit of his military time. And he's he really is an an honest and you know just great great all around guy. For those of you who don't know David very well, David's a big Jocko fan, and uh, so I know that's a bucket list thing for David is getting to meet Jocko. Oh yeah, Jocko's. You know he's the real deal, and so when and standing next to that guy, man, I I I would not want to get on the, his wrong side because you're you're not going to come out on top of that. That guy's an absolute tank. He's built like an Abrams tank. <laughs> he was he was you know I wouldn't say meek or soft spoken. He was just very mellow, very calm, and you know assessing the situations. But you know you could just tell it. If something was wrong, <laughs> you didn't want to be in that guy's way. Yeah, exactly. So you've been doing these archery challenges around around the area. So tell us a little bit about where you've been and what you've been doing. So I've been following the uh, Total Archery Challenge around the uh, west here. And if you don't know what Total Archery Challenge is, is its you know name implies, it's an event set up on uh, ski resorts for the weekend, and it's to, to uh, challenge your total archery skills, your hiking, your ranging, your shooting abilities, right? It's not just an archery competition where we stand in a flat field and decide who the winner is, right? You're, you're hiking up and down and through terrain. And so what, what they do give you one advantage is you ride the ski lift to the top of the mountain, and then you hike your way down. That's good. If you had to hike to the <laughs> top before doing this, uh, that would be... You know, we're talking a couple thousand feet of vertical elevation, and there's a lot of people at the end of the day dragging their feet and very tired. But you know that that's bow hunting is it's not a it's not a high success endeavor. You know, you don't you don't set out saying, "Oh, I'm going to be a bow hunter and just you know to to feel the freezer." That's not now as, as the years and the skills get acquired, yeah, you can start filling the freezer a little more frequently. But it took me a decade to to figure out enough skills to put them together to where I could have some routine success. So where are all these events happening? We had one in South Dakota, one in Colorado, one in Montana, and then this next one coming up will be in Utah. Awesome. So where at in Utah? Uh, Typically it's been at Snowbird Ski Resort. It's moved to Snow Basin. That's uh, some more 2020 COVID stuff. It keeps Everything get you know everything's up in the air day to day as far as these bigger events and what's going on. So, but if on a normal year, I mean, if you're into archery at, at all, 
look up these you know total archery challenges you've got to get on early to because these these events sell out real quick they they cap the participants so that it's still fun and enjoyable and the reason that you know if they just let everybody come it would be a standstill line you know disneyland for hours so you you want to be moving and shooting at this event you don't want to be waiting how many people they limit it to Uh, about 1500 1500 wow that's a lot of people slinging arrows in one day that's (laughs) you should see (laughs) i'll put a couple pictures up of the the piles of broken arrows is it's you know and and you start looking at these carbon arrows at 10 to 20 dollars an arrow and there's five gallon buckets full of them i mean it's it's a lot of money spent shooting foam for a weekend and i saw some of the pictures the train is kind of challenging on some of these and like some of the ways you have to shoot and just talk about that a little bit so like i said you know a a typical archery challenge would be standing in somebody's backfield and just moving the target further and further away these what they're doing is you're shooting between trees or over rocks right but you're doing a lot of up and down angles at Mm -hmm. distance so you know there's it's one thing to, to stand at 50 yards in your backyard and, you know, shoot a great group. It's something completely different when you're shooting across the canyon and you're standing on uneven gravel, right? One foot high, one foot low, so you can't get a great stance and still make a, a clean ethical shot. That's, that's what this is really for. And, you know, they're really great to get your hunter's eye, you know, focused well, right before season, you know, I would, I would suggest anybody go to a 3d shoot right before season. It's, you know, it's a whole different thing when you're shooting at a bag square target in the, in the backyard to shoot a small group and aim at a little black dot. When you're looking at a yellow foam animal on a somewhat yellow grassy hill, you know, you don't have that definite small black dot to aim at like you do on your bag target at home. So, you know, and then the other thing that I really like to look at is, as far as harvest, you know, you need to really pay attention to is that animal quartering away, is it broadside, and you don't want to take those quartering two shots, right? And so, you know, it's really difficult at, at those further distances to tell, is that animal completely broadside to me, or is he quartered away? And, you know, it it helps walking up there and seeing where your arrow would truly impact and go, oh, that wasn't, that wasn't as good a shot as I thought it was. It's a good way to learn that out on the range and not in the field. Yes, and you know it's the other thing I love about it is there's a lot of backyard heroes that go out there and you know lose a lot of arrows and break them, and hopefully that will uh, you know resonate a little bit and go, hey, maybe I shouldn't be taking. I, I'm not, you know, and we all have different skill set. We all have a different skill level, and I'm not gonna sit here and mandate any yardage that is a minimum or a maximum for any hunter. You need to, you know, go out and be able to justify that to yourself, to the animal, you know, and, and so if you can't go out and perform at, on foam for a weekend, you shouldn't be going out at those same distances and trying to harvest an animal. And we've talked about this a little bit, and I used to, you know, to to make it quick and simple, I used to shoot like a four or five inch group at 40 yards with old bow technology in the late 90s, right? And I went, well, I got, you know, I'm shooting okay at 30 and 40. I've got a 50, 60 pin. I can push it out. You know, an elk's kill zone is double or triple that size. I'm still be in there, right? That's a flawed mental fallacy where, because you're, you're cutting your success in half by doing that. What I do now is I take whatever my, you know, six inch group is, cut that distance in half. And that's my maximum hunting distance. 
Now what I've just done is because a six inch group is basically a kill shot every shot, right? By cutting that distance in half, I'm shooting a two and a half, three inch group, but I'm basically doubling my chances of success, not halving my chances of success. See what I'm saying? Yep. And that distance is different for, it's, it's a different distance for every hunter, every bow setup, everything. And then the final thing to look at is, you know, if you're really going to get into it, kinetic energy is important, right? And so I shoot a heavy arrow, and I shoot a slow arrow, but it's quieter, and when it gets there, it gets the job done. I'm talking pushing 500 grain, and I'm looking at going over 500 grain arrow. Just and to to give you an idea, you can get into the the you know high 300s. So I'm I'm 20 percent heavier than I would have to be if I went with a lightweight fast arrow, which gives you a flat curve. And you know if I was hunting like antelope in the desert strictly. I might go with a lighter, flatter, faster arrow, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm setting my setup up specifically for elk, and I want that heavy impact with a, a big old broadhead. Yeah. how? What's the age range of people that are at these events? Because it looked like there were some teenagers and all the way up. Oh, you got uh, families. That's the cool thing is you got mom, dad, both the kids, you know, ranging from, you know, youngins in backpacks to, you know, a lot of – five to nine-year-olds carrying their bow with their dad and their mom and going out shooting. And then you've got, you know, onwards up to, you know, the, the upper end of the 60s. Some of those some of those guys that are really fit and getting after it in their late 60s are up there shooting their bows. So it's, it's a whole family event. It's not just, you know. Now, what I say, it's probably averages 35 to 40-year-old male is. Yeah, I figured, but. I definitely saw some kids that were probably 15, 16 years old that were out there and slinging arrows and doing their thing. And that's good because that's what you want, right? You want to see families out there. No, oh, they've got a, a peewee range, they call it. And, you know, I've been taking my boy to these events, and he, he's not too excited about working the bow spider booth, which is fine. <laughs> but I cut him loose with his bow, and he, I mean, he's been up on the peewee range for five or six hours straight just flinging arrows. Yeah. And I know that these challenges attract, obviously, a lot of different people. And so you see celebrities now getting into bow hunting. And so I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, just some of the different people that are coming into the sport and doing some of these challenges that you've noticed. Well, you know, celebrities are just like you and me. They got hobbies and want to get out, and they want to be normal people. And most of them that I've met, quote-unquote, hunting celebrities, they're just normal people. They're cool people. They just want to be out shooting their bow, too, you know. So... Yeah, at, at these events you can you can run into all sorts and they're all there to to you know practice their skill a little bit and there there's some really cool giveaways at these events, you know, they're giving bows and giving giving prize packages and draft or raffles for hunting trips and so if you if you're on the fence about the hunting portion and the harvest, you know, you can you can stay there for a while but you can go out to one of these events and shoot some foam in in a realistic environment, right? We're no longer in the backyard shooting a bag target. It's it's a lot closer to a realism, right? When you come around the corner and there stands an, an elk or a, an antelope or whatever it might be, and it, it, you know, gets your brain into, you know, trying to transition from, because when I know the marked yardage is at home on the bag target, there's, there's no question of whether that arrow is going in the bag or not. We... You know, we get out there on one of these courses, and it's 
<laughs> a steep hill and I'm not quite sure about the range. And sometimes you're shooting between two trees or over a rock. You know, there was one shot a couple of years ago. It was a 40 yard distance, you know, from where your arrow left your bow to where your arrow hit the target. But linear, it was five yards. You were shooting straight off a cliff, straight down on top of a, oh, a sheep. And you, you had to pretty much have somebody hold your belt as you leaned over and shot off. The, and, you know, thankfully nobody fell off there. They had somebody <laughs> watching. But it was it was very intimidating to, you know, you draw your bow at zero degrees and then you start leaning down to almost a minus 50 degrees and shoot downhill. It was, and it, you know, you start adding those angles in there. It's a way different game than, oh, yeah, I can shoot 90 yards in my backyard all day long. I, I liken it to the guys who, you know, practice flipping in their backyard, you know, casting, you know, dropping something in a bucket. That's all well and good. Now go do it on <laughs> in an actual lake, standing on a boat that's moving, you know, trying to do that. And it's, you got it's three different. branches around there, yeah. and you, you you know there's a good bass there, but uh-huh. if you if hit any of those branches, you're going to A, spook him, and B, lose your lure, right? Yeah, so. or like musky fishing. Like that's that's one of the things we'll do is we'll run a shoreline, throw a big crankbait up around, you know, bushes and snags and all kinds of stuff. And if you screw up, <laughs> you got to pull in there and try to unhook your stuff and it's a mess. And of course you don't have a chance at any fish that was potentially there. So I did uh, go do some steelhead fishing. I was in, in Oregon here on a family trip and the steelhead were running somewhat. So I snuck down to the Sandy M river. I bought, bought my three day fishing license and Sweet. I, I didn't catch one Patrick. Steelhead are tough. So don't feel bad. <laughs> well, there was about 20 other guys on the river all morning with me. And you know how many other guys hooked one? None. None. Yeah. That's the thing about steelhead. They're they're tough. And you also went and did some crabbing, right? Yeah, we did. Uh, grabbed a buddy's boat and we went out to Newport Bay and caught some Dungeness and some Red Rock crab. And that oh, was... Man. That was pretty good. We did have a good scare. This this is a good one. So the boat was uh, new to the owner, and it'd been sitting for the spring. Fired it up in the yard, you know, no issues. Drove over the coast. Boat wouldn't start. So we ran around. We finally found some uh, some heat put in the tank, right? And uh, the issue was is the boat had been sitting all winter, mm-hmm. got some condensation, got some water and the gas, well, we bounced it all the way over the uh, the coast road and got over there. Well, we shook that water into that gas, and it and the kicker and the big motor more than once died on us. And that was, you know, we got both the boys in the boat, and that was a little bit when you're sitting in a river, and you know, we're we're a, maybe a mile out to the to the bay. Now the coasties are right there. We probably could have honked them down, and you know, they they watch pretty good, but. <laughs> You know, it was small craft advisory day, so you so any boat under twenty feet is not not to attempt to go over the bar. And there was some pretty good waves and storm coming in. And I, you know, when that motor quit for a, a couple seconds, I, it was, uh, you know, when it quit in the bay, no big deal. When it quit out, and you know, I was a little bit, it was intense there for a few months. We all had life jackets on, and you know, I yeah. People love to go out there in August and not wear a life jacket. That's all fine and dandy, but dude, that ocean is cold and that current swift. So, but yeah, we did get to eat, uh, you know, some Dungeness crab, and it wasn't enough. No, it's never, never enough. How did you guys prepare them? Uh, we take and clean them right there at the dock. So just mm-hmm. if you uh, 
if you take and put the crab at about a 45 from the, the nice stainless steel counter and just whack them on their belly, you can then uh, peel, them peel the shell off, break them in half, and then you wash all the uh, the lungs and everything else out. And we just take the halves home. And then we, uh, I like to boil them in a little bit of salt water. You don't have to take salt water from the ocean if you don't want to. You can, you know, just put salt and seasoning in the water. And then, you know, we, we put them hot on the middle of the table and put some butter in the table and just... And here, here's the most important thing. So I, uh, I eat one half when I'm shelling it. I take one bite and I put one bite in my little butter bowl. And then I take one bite and I put, yep. and so when I get done, I have a, a nice big old, you know, big old meal of crab. You got to have the butter. Oh, yeah. But I, I'm not patient enough. <laughs> my, my brother will sit there and he'll just shell two or three, right? Not eat any. And let it, and then reheat it and eat it. And I, I just, uh, I have to eat a little bit, you know. And what I think about is way back in the day on The Simpsons, Homer's car ran off a of beer and he's at the gas pump and he's giving the car one. He says, one for you, one for me. <laughs> and I, I, so I'm sitting there crap, shelling crap, one for me, one for me later. Yep, there you go. And I don't know, Dungeness crab is in my top as far as crab goes. I, I've had king oh. crab, I've had snow crab, all those different things, but Dungeness crab is better. It's just so darn good. Yeah, no, as far as flavor, I've had the, you know, down south, the blue crab, yep. and, you know, and like you said, Opelio snow crab. If I go to a buffet and a banquet, they're like, oh, snow crab, I, I don't even eat that. That's that's not crab, man. I'll eat king crab. It's it's okay. That's good. I mean, it's and it's a lot of volume, but as far as flavor, uh, they, there's nothing better than Dungeness crab. Dungeness crab has kind of a, a sweet taste to it. And when you put that butter on it, oh man, it's as good as it gets. And mm-hmm. I was a little jealous when I saw that picture. I'll just admit that. <laughs> we used to go up to Seattle and we would have them when we go up there. And I mean, they're just the best crab that you well, can get. Well, it's a 12 crab per person limit. And typically we get, you know, if we get four guys in a boat, we, we try and stay out and get, you know, three and a half or four limits. It was a little bit slow crabbing this trip. We got we got a limit between three guys, so I would have brought you some back. But you know, we're we're talking. We had like two and a half crabs a person plus kids and a few red rocks. So oh, by the time that. we cooked it, I, it was gone. Oh yeah. Well, and it's it's easy to go through a few of them because they're just so darn good. Next thing you know, they're gone. More than once, I've you know had a hanker and I go to the store and buy it. Do you know what they're charging for a Dungeness crab? I have no idea. It's like. Nine or ten bucks a pound and a good sized one, and that you buy them in with the shell, so you're you're paying over twenty bucks a crab, and I can eat three or four of them. So, yikes! I didn't know that was that expensive nowadays, but that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, the uh, I think the the Dungeness Capital, you know, fishing Newport is the is kind of the center. There's a huge fishery there, and that that's where the commercial fishery is out of is Newport, Oregon. What size are the pots that you guys were using for them? I like to use the cage traps, and they're, oh, I think 24 by 24 square on top, and then they're about 12 inches tall, and they've got four doors on each side. And we, you know, you can use all sorts of bait, but obviously a protein-based bait. Like a fish or something. Can't use a game fish, right? You can use white fish. You can use chicken. You can use, they sell mink. And if you use a fish product, and they have a ring-style trap, the seals will just annihilate your bait. So... Yeah, you kind of chicken and chicken and mink are a, a good option. Darn seals, they're good at stealing everything. I was watching in the, one of those mountain men shows the other day, and the guy was up in Alaska and he had a gill net, 
And so he had it strung across this this bay, and he had sockeye coming into it, and these seals kept coming over and stealing them all. It's like, well, yeah, it's smart. You know, it's easy food for them. <laughs> I've always, I've always uh, threatened. I have, I did get to go do a little bit of net fishing in Alaska. You know, dip netting's huge, and then set netting's another subsistence thing. But I've, I've always wanted to drift net stuff. You know, and I, I have one, one of these days. I will go get to go do it. Just not in Wyoming, right? Hey, unless we we could go with the game and fish and do you know like a gill net survey or something like that and help them pull nets and count fish or whatever. But there's nothing wrong with rod and reel, but you know <laughs> it's kind of like you can use a rod and reel in Dungeness crab. They have this little like you know it looks like a four leaf clover trap. Meat goes in the middle. It's kind of got like four snared nooses kind of thing. So as the crab comes in, you pull it tight. It hooks one of their legs hmm. and you reel it in. You can do that, but you're catching one every so often. You put out 12 crab traps. Catch a bunch. <laughs> you catch it a bunch. I, I like using there, There's a reason that our ancestors invented nets and traps and cages, right? Yeah, exactly. So what's next for Bow Spider um, as far as where you're going to be? And so Salt Lake this weekend and then what? Salt Lake this weekend. Then we have a couple. Uh, I've, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that, you know, I've never got into this filming thing and we'll knock on wood we'll uh we'll see i've uh conned a cameraman into following me around on a, a few hunts this fall so we're gonna try and document a little bit of and i i'm not too worried about getting the perfect epic we're not we're not starting a, a hunting film company but we are gonna go document you know we got we got a few good tags in the bank so i don't want to spoil too much of it but we'll definitely be posting some of our some teasers on Instagram and Facebook at Bow Spider, but there's a there's one or two really, you know, really big hunts that I'm excited about in state and out of state for big game. That's cool. Tell us for those who don't know what the Bow Spider is, because we get new listeners all the time. So what is it? So the Bow Spider is a you know universal quick detach system to carry your bow. There's a couple videos on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. You know, it's just bowspider.com is the best place to go start looking at some of that. There's, you know, carried in stores. There's a few few magazine articles out there about how it works, but it's basically, you know, just a quick-release holster for your bow. And the best thing about it, in my mind, and I'm not a bow guy, but um, you can put it on your pack, and it's easy to get off your pack. You can put it on your belt. It's easy to get off your belt. You can hang it on the headrest of your truck and pack your bow that way so it's not getting banged around in your truck. You can put one in your garage or on your range to, you know, hang up your bow while you go pick up your arrows and do what you got to do. I mean, it's what you've put together is pretty, pretty awesome. So it's a total bow management system, right? Yeah. You can go from, from home to field and back and basically have a third hand that holds your bow, whether it's in your truck, in your tree stand, on your pack, you know. And I really like it on the wall at home because I've got little kids that, all the time wanting to play with my bow so i'm always trying to keep it out of the way and the wife's always moving it here and there and whatever now it's got one spot it comes home and i hang it up on the wall and it's now i don't have to worry about because i used to come home put the broadheads back in the plastic case lock it put it in the bow case right because i don't want those kids grabbing those broadheads playing with them they're sharp mm -hmm. well now it just hangs it's high enough up on the wall it's good broadheads yeah. stay in the quiver and when i want to go again tomorrow just grab it hang it right behind the headrest of the truck and i'm gone Yep. And that's another cool thing is you just need a drywall screw and 
a stud in your wall. I mean, you got it hung up and it's out of the way and no big deal. Yeah, that's what that's what took the most time was developing that receiver, the the puck as we call it, to be able to, you know, be modular and adapt to all those different substrates, right? So you can strap it to a pack, you can bolt it to a pack, you can use the waist belt it comes with, or you can hard bolt it with sheetrock screws. So that took that took all the time to get the system to work the way it does. Yeah. Well, I think we'll wrap this one up, but we will go to Alaska. Not no. this year with all the restrictions because they made it pretty darn impossible for Dave and I this year, but that's okay. We will definitely do this again next year. We will get some cool stuff done for that. Um, and, you know, follow David at, at Bow Spider um, on Facebook. Definitely check out what they're doing. You can look at, at Total Archery Challenge as well just to kind of see what we were talking about today. I encourage you to get your family out there. Again, that's why we do this show is to try to get you to get your family out there, get your friends out there, continue the sport. And so make sure you go out there and check that out. If you want to get a bow spider, go to bowspider.com. You can order those now. Um, I recommend that you not only get the initial pack, which is just a one setup, but buy the extra pucks because you're going to want them. Oh, you're going to at least one, and then you can come back and get a couple more. Uh, one question that keeps getting asked, you know, over and over again is, you know, where do I start to get into archery? How do I do that? And there's, uh, you know, the there's two bow companies that come to mind, and I might get in trouble for saying this, but I don't care. You know, Matthews and Bowtech both have a youth model bow, but what's cool about their youth model bows is when I was a kid, you know, the youth model bow was like five to seven, you know, eight to nine. You know, so every two years you were having to buy a new bow. The, uh, I'm not, I don't remember Bowtex. It's a diamond and I don't remember their, their name, but the diamond model, they have a youth diamond model that goes from like five-year-old draw length and weight all the way up to 18-year-old draw length and weight, right? It goes from 17 to 30 inches in draw length and it goes from like five to 60 pounds in pull weight. Nice. So you can go buy, and Matthew's Menace brand, the Mission Menace, does the exact same thing. And I mean, pretty much with tools at home, you can adjust the draw length and adjust the draw weight. So, you know, every six months or so when your kid, you know, changes clothes size, they don't have to change a new bow. They, you can go buy that one bow and they can pretty well. Now it's a little more money than some of the entry level stuff. I think they're three, 400 bucks, but it's a one-time purchase till they graduate and get to a, a full-size bow. That's awesome. And again, Go to radcastoutdoors.com. Definitely like, share, subscribe, um, and check us out on Instagram and Facebook because we can't do this without you. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>